HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Just a quick announcement before we get started. The episode of Back Bar that you're about to hear originally aired as Bar None in 2017. Cheers. New Year's Day, 2013. After 13 years and one day, Milk and Honey closes its doors on the Lower East Side. It's a rare thing, even today, to hear someone talk about this pioneering bar or its enigmatic founder without using the word revolutionary. And there's a reason for that. When it first opened, the place had no sign, 24 seats, a jazz age aesthetic, and posted rules for proper decorum. You had to call ahead for reservations using a secret number, and even if you could get your hands on it, there's no guarantee it was the same number it was a month ago. Since Milk and Honey opened, these ideas have been copied again and again and again and again, and nowadays you can go to pretty much every city in America and find a Prohibition-style speakeasy if you look hard enough, which you don't really need to because all of the great ones aren't so hard to find anymore. But then there's this question of how did all of this, the secrecy, the intimacy, the nostalgia, all of it become trappings of a much larger movement? What makes these ideas so great? I'm Greg Benson, and this is Bar None. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st slash hrn. This week on Meet and 3, it's the final episode of our series on global trade. We're thinking futuristically, from China's ambitious plans for a new Silk Road to the future of borders and automation. If you're a banana, you know, it's easy to cross the border. But if you're a person who's trying to follow the jobs, uh, it's a lot more difficult, if not impossible, to do so in an authorized and safe fashion. They love food trucks and they love growing your own food because these things are not dependent on essentially government systems. So there's a whole politics to pretzels on the dark web. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the show. You're listening to Bar None, the podcast where we look at the history of our favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. And today, we're not going to look as far back into history as we usually do. 
We've spent a lot of time on this show looking at antique notions like the temperance movement or how people in colonial America used a red-hot poker to stir their drinks. True fact. But every single person we're talking about today is too young to remember Prohibition and has worked in a relatively safe, red-hot, poker-free environment. At least as far as I know. And this is because we're talking about the contemporary age of cocktails, the movement that got started sometime in the late 80s, early 90s, and really hit its stride in the early 2000s when bars like Milk and Honey first opened. And it's still going on today. Much like the decade that birthed it, there's been a lot of names tossed around for this era. The Platinum Age, the Cocktail Renaissance. But the term I've come to prefer is the Neoclassical Age, because almost all of the innovators we're talking about today took their inspiration from the classics, and from people like Jerry Thomas and David Embry, who we've been talking about all season long. And where would any discussion of the Neoclassical or Platinum or whatever you want to call it age be without the aviation? It's a drink that was invented just before Prohibition, was miscopied in a 1930s recipe book, was promptly forgotten about for decades, and then was rediscovered about 15 years ago, and it requires an obscure French liqueur made from violets in order to be faithfully reproduced. And if you're thinking to yourself, wow, what an incredibly esoteric and inaccessible-sounding beverage, well, pat yourself on the back because you are 100% correct about that. And yet... Like the arm garter and the handlebar mustache, this drink went on to become emblematic of the modern cocktail revolution. It became the secret handshake of cocktail bartending a few years ago, probably because there was a little bit of mystery and intrigue about it, and you had to be in the know to even know what it was. Um, a little bit also just right place, right time. Joining us once again today is Greg Bohm, the CEO of Cocktail Kingdom in New York City. You may remember in our pilot, he touched lightly on the aviation, and I wanted to come back for the full story. In brief, the aviation was invented in 1916 by a bartender named Hugo Enslin, and it consists of gin, lemon juice, maraschino, and creme de violette, which is that French floral stuff. But when we dove a little deeper into its history, Greg said something that surprised me. So the aviation's a, a curiosity to me as well. I don't think it's a good drink. And I don't, that's certainly not better than many other similar drinks, let's say. It's not a bad drink. Um, it really depends a lot on the creme de violette that you have. I mean, let's take, I mean, in the early, you know, 1911, uh, there's a, a quote from uh, the Syracuse Herald newspaper there. It says, the aviation cocktail is the latest, but after all, aren't all cocktails of the aviation variety? Ouch. But to be fair, the aviation's unprecedented success in recent years is a bit of a quandary. With its mixture of gin, lemon, and two very potent liqueurs, it manages to feel at once like a strange acquired taste and something everyone's seen a million times before. So the question really isn't, how could this beautiful gem of a cocktail be lost for so long as, why this drink? Or perhaps more accurately, this drink? Really? And yet... In the final installment of his New York Times column, Shaken and Stirred, Jonathan Miles called this drink a, quote, sublimely floral combination of gin and maraschino liqueur that was a web sensation before bars like Milk and Honey started featuring it on cocktail lists. And the picture that kicks the whole thing off features illustrious Milk and Honey alumnus Sam Ross. And while the Times could have snapped a picture of him making the penicillin cocktail, which he invented, or any of the other delicious neoclassics that came out of that bar, he's engaged instead in building an aviation. That was in 2010, and it's clear at that point that however it may have happened, by the end of the last decade, people were absolutely swooning over this particular drink. 
Of course, it's tough to have any discussion about this era without mentioning Milk and Honey or its inscrutable founder, Sasha Petrasky. Cocktails are not worth intellectualizing. They're just something to be experienced. A cocktail is a simple thing. What matters is if you make it right. It's apparent pretty quickly why it doesn't take people who are talking about Sasha very long to use the word enigmatic. The guy was a masterclass in contradictions, a laid-back hard-ass who wore 80-year-old styles without a shred of irony. And he pioneered a number of ideas that feel worn out and cliché in clumsier hands than his. The bar with no sign, with the hidden entrance, with the costumed staff, and the bespoke, classically-minded cocktails tailored to each customer. All of these things that have become these wink-wink, nudge-nudge tropes, Milk and Honey just kind of did. No airs, no pretensions. It was just who they were. I would give a lot, if not all, of the credit to Sasha Petrasky and Milk and Honey. Uh, he was inspired by Dale DeGroff, of course, and Dale was one of the first people who started using uh, um, fresh juices and things like that. You know, it was probably started by Dale more than anything, because I remember the story of when Dale handed Sasha uh, Jerry Thomas's book, and Sasha just ran with that. That voice belongs to Tom Richter, the head bartender of Dear Irving and the owner of Tomer's Tonic. I reached out for some insights on Dale DeGroff, The Rainbow Room, a couple other bits of modern history we discussed in the pilot. And as we got talking, it turned out that Tom actually worked with Sasha back in 2010. I met him and Dear Irving's general manager, Eileen Fisher, to talk about the state of the cocktail union. But of course, it wasn't long before the conversation pivoted to milk and honey and the way the world looked from behind that bar. I do think the education side is really important and positive, though, too. It's mm -hmm. like, like playing guitar, right? Uh, like be classically trained, but play rock and roll. Yeah, 1999, I believe, is when Sasha started it. And he kind of came at it from a very wonderfully naive approach of, well, we need to have something like this. And instead of relying on bad habits and bad setup, he just came completely from a new place going, well, we need to have fresh this, but it needs to be on ice. So whenever you see this mise en place at bars that are filled with ice and all these little things and juices in them and, 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 and uh, garnishes and all that stuff, that started with milk and honey. I mean, he was the pioneer in that. Uh, he just relied on the classics and went from there. And before long, other people were going on from there, too. New Orleans hosted the first ever Tales of the Cocktail in 2002. New York's Pegu Club opened in 2005, helmed by fellow Dale DeGroff disciple Audrey Saunders. Imagine not being able to go out and have a good cocktail. Imagine like a bad dream if all of the bars that you now frequent simply did not exist. There was no movement back then. There were only a handful of us preaching the gospel of craft in the hopes that it would eventually stick. And in San Francisco, renowned bartender Gaz Reagan kicked off 13 years of writing his Cocktailian column in 2001. When I first got my hands on a bottle of creme de violette, I made myself aviation using three parts gin and one part each of the liqueurs and the lemon juice. It worked very well. And the color, the color, it's nothing short of glorious. To behold a cocktail that's almost gray, but tinged with the barest hint of violet is as glorious as witnessing a September sunrise in Maine. The revolution was spreading, and the aviation 
if you'll forgive me for this, was taking off. Reagan wrote that column in 2007, and at that point, the aviation was already the darling of the Internet age, spreading through a medium that was getting better and better at spreading information by the day. This strange little off-purple thing had become, to borrow the Times' words, a web sensation. And it wasn't just drink recipes and mixing techniques that were multiplying like electronic bunny rabbits either. Let's try something. Think about the Internet. Not the way it is now, but what it was like about 10 years ago. Remember it. And then try and get a good mental picture of the thing. One image that really sums the whole shebang up perfectly. You thinking about it? You got a good one? You're thinking about cats, aren't you? And you should be. Remember law cats? Those things were everywhere. It seemed like there was a good five years there where there wasn't a crack or a crevice of the internet that didn't have its own law cat stationed around there somewhere. And it wasn't just the cats either. This was a golden age for those funny little bite-sized jokes without a plot or agenda or context that seemed to do nothing but replicate over and over and over again. In October of 2003, a 15-year-old high schooler in New York went into his bedroom and created a website. It was modeled off Japanese discussion boards, which don't store content or require users to register, allowing people to post completely anonymously. It was called 4chan, and it was the pool of standing water hidden under the internet's back deck. All kinds of things came swimming out of it. Some of them good, most of them, frankly, not. But the important thing was that it was an unfettered breeding ground of jokes and ideas, things we all eventually came to refer to as memes. Susan Blackmore, who studies memes, describes them thusly. The whole idea of a meme is that it is information that is copied with variation and selection. So any idea that is copied from person to person is a meme. Lots succeed because they're good for us, or they're true, or beautiful, or useful, and we select them for those reasons. Some other memes succeed in spite of not being beautiful or true or useful by using tricks. They trick you into thinking that you're going to get popular, that you're going to get rich, or that you're going to get a bigger penis. Whatever it is. One of the more famous ones goes a little something like this. In 2007, Rockstar Games dropped the first trailer for Grand Theft Auto 4, but thanks to extremely heavy traffic on their site, the video was unavailable. One 4chan user claimed to have a mirror for the video, but instead of a sneak preview, people who clicked on the link got this. That, if you don't know, is Rick Astley's 1987 smash hit, Never Gonna Give You Up. It won Best British Single at the Brit Awards in 1988, but that doesn't matter at all, because 20 years later, people were bait-and-switching the video for just about everything in a process called rickrolling. And it was everywhere. Less than a year after the original prank, a Survey USA poll estimated that about 18 million people had been rickrolled. Which is all well and good and funny, but you may be saying to yourself, what does that have to do with cocktails? Don't worry, I'm not going to swap out the history of drinks for the history of 1980s Britpop in some sort of meta rickroll, although again, that would be funny. But to understand the logic behind the neoclassical age of cocktails, we need to understand the logic behind memes. And for that, we need to go back a little further, to 1976, and the publication of a groundbreaking and fairly controversial little book. 
Our life evolves by the differential survival of replicating entities. The gene, the DNA molecule, happens to be the replicating entity that prevails on our own planet. But do we have to go to distant worlds to find other kinds of replicator and other consequent kinds of evolution? Building on the theories of Charles Darwin and other geneticists, Richard Dawkins published The Selfish Gene. And the first ten chapters of the book are all about gene status as the single primary unit of survival. They have no agenda and they're ruthless. And Dawkins argues that it's the gene, not the individual or the species, that's the basic unit of evolution. It's our genetics that carry on and reproduce, not us. And to help them in that, they built larger and more complex survival machines. In other words, life. He calls these basic genetic units replicators. I think that a new kind of replicator has recently emerged on this very planet. It is staring us in the face. It is still in its infancy, still drifting clumsily about in its primeval soup. But already it is achieving evolutionary change at a rate that leaves the old gene panting far behind. But in the final chapter of his book, he describes a new type of replicator, one that's using our brains the same way our distant microscopic ancestors used the primordial soup. We need a name for the new replicator, a noun that conveys the idea of a cultural transmission or a unit of imitation. My meme comes from the suitable Greek root, but I want a monosyllable that sounds a bit like gene. I hope my classicist friends will forgive me if I abbreviate my meme to meme. Examples of memes are tunes, ideas, catchphrases, clothes fashions, ways of making pots or of building arches. Just as genes propagate themselves in the gene pool by leaping from body to body, so memes propagate themselves in the meme pool by leaping from brain to brain. Which explains not only Rick Rowling and Law Cats and Dogue and Chocolate Rain and Star Wars Kid and Dramatic Look Gopher, but the cocktail renaissance too. All those ideas at Milk and Honey and the other neoclassical early adopters spread because, well, that's what ideas do. They did it so well, in fact, that Sasha later admitted that all that imitation was starting to get on his nerves. People need to realize that unless a bar can work without the hype of being a speakeasy, then it can't stand up as a business. There are so many people that do stuff that's just a joke, and it's unfortunate that a lot of them trace that lineage back to my bars. It also explains the aviation and how a cocktail can even be called a web sensation. One person knows about it, they write it down, three people read it, they write that down, three more people read each of theirs, and so on and so forth, like a tasty pyramid scheme. But of course, I started to get curious. Where did it all begin? Who's aviation patient zero? I once had a very frustrating conversation with somebody who had gone to Tokyo hearing about how Japanese bartenders are so well studied, they know all the classics. And they ordered an aviation, and the bartender had no idea what it was. And as I'm saying, I don't think it's a classic cocktail. It's an old cocktail, but not a classic cocktail. So the fact that an American bartender found it from obscurity and decided to make it something, it became the secret handshake in the U.S., but that wasn't the case years ago in other countries. Even if you were a very studied bartender, he or she wouldn't know that drink. 
there's certain drinks, like the Bronx is an old drink, which was famous, had its moment in the sun. The aviation never had its moments in the sun until the last few years. I did a little experiment. I went on Google and I punched in the words aviation cocktail followed by a couple different years and measured the results. So aviation cocktail 2007, aviation cocktail 2006, etc. I picked 2007 because it's the year Gaz Reagan published that glowing write-up of Creme de Violette in his column. And coincidentally, it was also the year of the first reported Rickroll. So the idea was to see how many people were blabbing about this drink online in any given year. So Aviation Cocktail 2007 gave me about 29 million hits. Aviation Cocktail 2006 gets you about 24 and a half million. In 2005, it drops to 20.5, and in 2004, it's down to 410,000. So I plunked down in the year of the Athens Olympics and Million Dollar Baby, and I did some digging. And I found this one thread on a site called egullet.org. It was a forum where folks were discussing the best place to find an aviation in Manhattan. And sure enough, there was one rock star in there who had all the answers. While you're at it, you might ask him if he's snagged any creme de violette. According to Hugo Enslin's 1916 Recipes for Mixed Drinks, which has the earliest formula for the drink I've been able to find, that went into the aviation along with the maraschino, lemon, juice, and gin. It gives the drink a pale, skyish blue color, which explains its name. Got him, I thought. This is the source. This is the missing link. This is ground zero of the aviation fascination that swept the nation. And then I looked at his name. Quite often, I've spotted a copy of my book nestled on a high shelf behind the bar, among the clutch of reference books such places tend to keep. Indeed, I've had a surprising number of young bartenders tell me that reading the book was a precondition for their employment in such a place. It was David Wandrich. David Wandrich, who you may remember from the credits of almost every episode we've done as the author of what I've taken to calling the always indispensable imbibe. And in 2004, he was just another nerd on the internet, eager to take what he had read and learned and spread it as far and wide as he possibly could. And quite frankly, this goes a long way towards explaining the appeal of the aviation. I know we've spent a lot of time so far poo-pooing this drink, or at least damning it with faint praise. But the fact of the matter is that the aviation success never really depended on how it tastes. Which is weird, I know, that to understand the appeal of a cocktail, we first have to completely ignore the flavors that go into it. But in this case, the rediscovery of the aviation has more to do with the act of rediscovering than the drink itself. Pretty simply, that's how it got into the continuum right there. It's, hey, I know what I'm doing. I'm getting an aviation. You know, I might have picked up some obscure book or some bartender made this for me. And usually, I'm, I'm sure it was that first. Some bartender introduced it to this person. They loved it, and it was unusual and different, and then that just kind of spreads like, hey, what an aviation from that guy. And then, you know, the, the bars that all knew each other, that knew how to make aviations well, and then you go there, and it's like, da-da-da, sent me over to have an aviation. Oh, great. And I'm sure that's, that's kind of how it starts even now. The history of the aviation, brief as it is, goes a little something like this. Hugo Enslin, a German-born bartender working at the Wallach House in Times Square, publishes Aviation Recipe in 1916. His book, Recipes for Mixed Drinks, was one of the last great cocktail compendiums to make it out of New York before Prohibition, although the first printed mention of the drink came in 1911. 
You heard it at the top of the show, that thing Greg said about all cocktails being of the aviation variety. Because they get you high, get it? Although we can't, in fairness, be sure about which aviation this cheeky journalist is referring to. As you might expect, the Wright brothers were kind of a big deal at this point in history. And just like now, how I would put good money on there being more than one tequila cocktail in the United States called the Bad Ombre, the 19-teens had at least three cocktails of the aviation variety that we know about. After the invention of aviation, there were quite a few cocktails named the aviation. It happens with the coronation cocktail, because <laughs> there's different coronations, and then there's coronation cocktails. So aviation is definitely one of those where there are numerous uh, cocktails called the aviation. That's not to say, of course, that they were particularly good or even memorable. The first one was just a Jack Rose with a dash of absinthe, and the second was a half-and-half half blend of Dubonnet and Sherry with an orange twist. The reason our boy survived probably, is because the creme de violette gives it that really nice hint of sky blue, which makes the next step in its journey even more inexplicable. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based consumers in your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st slash hrn. That's ju.st slash hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier with no cholesterol and less saturated fat, and it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st slash hrn. That's ju.st slash hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble. Great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also a frozen pre-baked folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres calls Just Egg mind-blowing and Bon Appetit says, It's so good, I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st slash hrn. When Harry Craddock compiled his now-famous Savoy cocktail book, he cribbed liberally from pretty much everybody. When his recipe book debuted in London in 1930, it contained a number of Enslin's drinks, including the aviation, but with one crucial difference. The creme de violette was gone. Did Craddock omit the pungent floral liqueur because it was difficult to source? It's possible. Was he or someone who worked for him guilty of some slapdash copying? That's much more likely. Whatever happened, any link between the drink and the actual sport of aviation was lost with the Violette, and the task of 21st century drink detectives got a little bit harder. I'd also argue, I wouldn't say the aviation cocktail survived. I would say it was rediscovered. Hmm. The aviation to me is not a classic cocktail. It's not a famous cocktail. It's a rediscovered cocktail, as is the last word. 
It's not a cocktail that was ever famous. It might have been served one or two places. It appears in extremely few books. It's just somebody rediscovered it and brought it back now. But I would go to say it's not a famous cocktail on any level until recently. Whatever may have transpired to leave creme de violette on the pre-World War II cutting room floor, by the middle of the 20th century, it was exceedingly difficult to find. And if you're looking for some tragic absinthian story where this poor scapegoated liqueur gets blamed for nymphomania or gout or some other thing it absolutely does not cause, then I'm afraid you're out of luck. The reason creme de violette fell off the shelves in the mid-1900s isn't because it fell victim to temperance or ignorance. It's because if you drink it on its own... It kind of tastes like a Yankee candle. And people don't like that. When did I start making aviations again? Not again. I didn't make them. Uh, let's see. I was probably... I read about it. I read about it with the, for the use of the... Because I wanted to find out what you use creme de violette for. I had some on my back bar somewhere. Somewhere I was working at 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. And, oh, let's, let's, let's try this. Pretty. Delicious. Yeah. Purple. Purple. But even the color is problematic. If you use just the right amount of just the right product, then you get that beautiful pale sky blue that Enslin probably intended. But if you use the wrong amount or different stuff, you get something that's either way too violet or an unassuming gray, somewhere between a bruised thumb and dirty dishwater. Plus, Tom told me that if you use all-natural violette the way he and Eileen do, your aviations are going to turn out ever so slightly pink. The point is, I'm colorblind, and I can't tell the difference. No, the point is that in a really roundabout sort of way, the weirdness of violette could explain its host cocktail's improbable success. Dawkins owns in his theory of memetics that memes, like genes, are subject to random copying errors. Oftentimes, these mutations don't do any favors to the gene or its host bodies, but on some extraordinarily rare occasions, that fluke genetic mistake might just be extremely beneficial to the survival of the organism and its DNA. Imagine a baby snake, thousands of years ago, born in the Mojave Desert to a normal snake mom and a normal snake dad with perfectly normal snake brothers and sisters. Except this one for some reason, has a rattling appendage on the end of its body. None of the other snakes have it. It isn't quote-unquote supposed to be there. And yet, it just so happens to be extremely beneficial to that baby snake's survival. And we could say the same about the creme de violette meme. The 30s weren't an era where folks were particularly into strange, inaccessible flavors. In the States, at least, people wanted to celebrate the repeal of Prohibition with sweeter, easier tastes. And a bottle of purple stuff from France that tastes like a flower bed would not have had a chance in hell. So it's entirely possible that this accidental copying error in Harry Craddock's book, this mimetic mutation, allowed the aviation to lie dormant, only to come storming back to life some 70-odd years later. I would take it even one step further. It's not discovering things that have been lost. What's been lost is how to make a proper Bronx cocktail. Because the way it's not common now, and the way it was made for years and years was bad. But it was once good. That's discovering lost. This is finding things that were created at a time when cocktail culture was so rich and so many great things were being created that some of these great creations never got discovered. So it'd be like going back to a time when there were 
in music when there were lots of groups playing a certain kind of music, so we know this one and that one, but there was a third group that plays a similar genre of music that we've never heard of. So we're not forgetting about all the, all the hard work and all the creativity people had in the late 1800s, early 1900s. We're going back and saying, yeah, maybe this was only served in one bar and never really became famous, but it's just as good. But even then, even if you buy that the aviation's chance deletion of its violet meme helped it survive for the better part of a century, and even if you buy that the obscurity meme helped it garner the cachet it needed to come back, it still doesn't answer the fundamental question, why? Why this drink? Why gin and lemon and maraschino and creme de violette? There are hundreds of books with thousands of obscure recipes kicking around out there. What out of all of those makes this quartet of ingredients so special? It's because memes, to quote Dawkins, are selfish. A meme doesn't survive because it's inherently cooler or better or more truthful. A meme, an idea, doesn't have to be good to survive. There are plenty of good ideas that never spread beyond half a dozen people. A meme, if it's a successful meme, is successful at replicating. It's the end-all be-all of what they do. And by the same token that lots of good ideas fail, there are plenty of bad ideas that succeed, like the idea that a major presidential candidate was running a sex trafficking ring out of a pizza shop in Northwest DC, or Crocs. Ideas don't need to be good to spread. They just need to be good at spreading. So I guess you could say that the aviation is kind of the never-gonna-give-you-up of cocktails. It's good. It's not great. But man, is it good at multiplying. So I think it's fun to go back and look at these things and look at old books, especially, which is what I do, and see which of these drinks are great. I mean, I found um, the same book where the last word comes from, uh, Bottoms Up by Ted Saucier, published in 1951. Uh, there's a drink in there called El Habitant, which is basically just a Canadian whiskey sour with maple syrup in it. So simple, but something about it's amazing, it's magical, and to me, I like the fact somebody created that drink once. Maybe it was popular. It says the, you know, the one place it was served in, like, Quebec was the only place you could get it, but <laughs> I went back and I discovered it, now I've told a few people, and now it's on a few menus, and it's becoming known. It was never a famous drink, but there's a lot of great information you know, it's fun to create your own. It's fun to you know have uh, drinks created by a bartender that you just he or she created in the last week. But it's also fun to find something that somebody created a hundred years ago and just laid there waiting to be discovered, and now we discover it. It's a great thing. In the end, that's how ideas survive, and a good idea can outlive all of us. An idea that's truly great at spreading can outlive you the same way it can outlive me. The same way the ideas he put forward already outlived Sasha. August 21st, 2015. Sasha Petrasky dies in his home in Hudson, New York. He was 42. To say he left behind a legacy, first of all, doesn't begin to do it justice. And after that, it's only the beginning of a fitting tribute to all of his improbable, off-the-wall ideas that made Milk and Honey such an unexpected and unlikely success. I was young, and the rent was low, 
but at the end of the day, you shouldn't be able to create a bar in such a small place, and the fact that we made it happen was amazing. Milk and Honey never should have succeeded. A bar with no sign, with no advertising, with a 5 to 1 ratio of customers to staff, and a 30-foot walk every time the bar needed more ice shouldn't have succeeded. And yet, it did. A cocktail published in one book right before the entire country gave up drinking for 13 years that requires an obscure and inaccessible liqueur that was copied down wrong that had a crucial ingredient go out of circulation only to be rediscovered on the internet shouldn't have succeeded. And yet, it did. And Greg and Eileen and Tom and I and lots of other people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out why it did, why this particular drink beat the odds. This sort of brings me to the biggest question I'm trying to get to the heart of for this episode, which is why this particular drink? Why the aviation? And it almost kind of... It, it reminds me of a meme in a lot of ways. It kind of like, uh, like Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up, and that it's not a particularly <laughs> amusing song, and it's not a particularly great song. It, you know, you could argue that it's a good song, just like I'd say the aviation's a good drink, but I wouldn't say it's a great drink. But it seems like in sort of the early days of this neoclassical period, it was like the secret handshake of mm. bartenders. Like when you went to a bar and you're like, oh, the aviation, they were like, oh, this guy knows his shit. Right. So I can't figure out why that one was sort of picked to be the poster boy at first. Well, you know, I don't think it's picked. I think it just happens, you know, and people... I've been asking a lot of why questions on the show. Why this idea? Why this drink? Why this bar? But when all is said and done, ideas don't need a why to succeed. They don't need a reason or a motivation. They spread because that's what they're good at doing. Because that's what they've always done. What I think is happening, I'm really happy with, and I've seen this a lot. Uh, instead of the cocktail bars being a place that you have to go and worship at, terrific cocktails are being made in almost every bar now. So, like, my dream bar would be a dive bar with, like, wooden tables, a pool table, a dartboard, a shuffleboard, great beers on tap, and great cocktails. Bartenders and t-shirts, whatever. You know, but, you know, the, the, the thing that is going to be much more approachable for everyone, because, yeah, now we got into the, the you know, the hipsters all love the cocktails, blah, 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 but we've got to get everybody to like the cocktails, or at least introduce them to because they will. You know, but you've got to have a much less... Uh, uh, a, a much less intimidating scene for that as well. And I think that is where it's going to go. And we'll all only get better because of that. Because then if I go to some dive bar and they make a killing whatever, I'm like, yo, how, do you, how did you make that so great? And I was like, oh, we just did this. And I'm sure to be a simpler way. I'm going to take that idea. You know, so I think it's just going to, we can all grow as it gets everywhere. Yeah. I think that it's just getting, people are getting more, like, fun. They're mm-hmm. having more fun with it. So, like, you're seeing a lot more, um, like, frozen Negronis or, um, you know, just sort of sillier things. But at the end of the day, I always say it's, it's a bar. We work in a bar. Yep. We serve alcohol. Alcohol is a drug. That makes us drug dealers. We are drug dealers by a different name. It's fun. December 31st, 1999. Opening night for Milk and Honey on the Lower East Side. Sasha is rushing around, busily putting the finishing touches on a number of peculiar choices he'd made to keep his bar in business. There is no sign, 
because of an agreement with his landlord, the neighbors would never know there was a bar there. There was a waiting list, because a 24-seat bar was all he could afford. There was no menu, because he couldn't figure out how to work a printer. And the whole atmosphere had a transportative 1920s jazz vibe, because Sasha liked it that way. All these ideas that people point to as revolutionary, as a bellwether of the times, or just plain genius, they worked for milk and honey because that's what good ideas do. It's what they have to do. When it comes down to it, the milk and honey way is not an intellectual way of drinking. Talking about cocktails, that's just silly. It has its place. It can be thrilling to catch bits of inside baseball, but it's nothing that needs to be talked about. Cocktails are to be experienced. And these ideas are still out there. They're spreading. They're opening new bars every day. They're shaping an era that includes Sasha and Milk and Honey and Tales of the Cocktail and Pigou Club and Death and Company and PDT and Employees Only and Dead Rabbit Grocery and Grog and this podcast and you. Because these memes that Sasha let loose on Millennium's Eve aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Except for this one. This one idea, this one little nugget I found in my research, which seems to be the key, the, the linchpin of Milk and Honey's success. And just like the aviation, it's been undiscovered for 17 years and hasn't seen the light of day. Until now. This episode of Back Bar was researched, written, and directed by me, Greg Benson. Keegan Cassidy and I produced while Ryan Laney scored, edited, and mixed our show. You can find his work at ryanlaneymusic.com. Back Bar is powered by Simplecast. Thank you, as always, to our amazing guests, Greg Bohm, Tom Richter, and Eileen Fisher, as well as the wonderful cast for this episode, Elliot Kashner, Mary Myers, Keegan Cassidy, Kristen Pilgrim, Colin Connor, and Nick Martin. Thank you so much for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Follow me on Instagram at 100proofgreg. That's 100 with numbers, not letters. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. HRN is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Do you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, like, say, this one right here. Tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Join us next time when we put down the cocktail glass and pick up the soda gun to talk about malts, mocktails, and the golden age of Hollywood. That's in two weeks for more on history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Cheers.